And would you open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 43. That's on page 1053 in the Pew Bible. Gospel of John, chapter 4. Page 1053 as we continue our study through John. We had a great week this week. We had uh, 30 men here, pastors, youth pastors, seminarians, elders, uh, at an expository preaching conference here, and it was just great to have them working together and sharpening their skills to preach. So thank you for all who prayed for that. It, it was a real blessing to just meet guys who are doing all kinds of new works, new churches. There's stuff springing up all over. met a guy in Brockton who started a church there. Uh, a couple, a couple of years ago, a guy named Steve, and just exciting to see how the Lord is raising up new works and new preachers, and you know, he is at work on the South Shore. It's really encouraging. But anyway, I'm ready to preach after a preaching conference, so John 4. Uh, here's what I want to do as, as we do read through John 4, verses 43 to 54, is I'm going to read the text, and as I'm reading it, and you're sort of following along in your Bibles, I'd like you to try to ask yourself a question, and here's the question. Would you characterize this passage as positive or negative? It's kind of vague, but, you know, just go with me here. Positive or negative? All right, so I'm going to read the passage, and, and you'd be thinking that question in your mind. And you know what? Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We need to stand. John four forty three to 54. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Be seated. Positive or negative? How would you characterize this story? Is it a positive story or negative story? I I wrestled with that because I I couldn't decide as I was looking at this text. I, I said, is this supposed to be something that's to encourage and comfort me? Or is this a story that's supposed to convict and challenge me? You know, there's elements of both. In fact, in the first three verses, as you look at verses 43 to 45, before you even get to the healing itself, you already have this this bifurcated uh, message, it seems, between a negative and a positive. You know, it starts out in verse 43, after the two days he left for Galilee. 
So now just to kind of remember the story, some of you have been with us, some of you haven't, but what's going on in the story? Jesus is traveling from the south in Judea, the south of Israel, to the north of Israel in Galilee. He uh, went down for the Passover festival. We just read about Solomon keeping the Passover festival. Well, Jesus was keeping the Passover festival, and he traveled from south of Galilee through Samaria back home to the north in Galilee. So from Judea, Samaria to Galilee. And as we have been studying like for the last five weeks, Jesus stopped in Samaria for an unanticipated layover, and he meets with this Samaritan woman, and he shares the gospel with her. He shares the gospel with her whole community. And now, after staying there an extra two days, he finishes the journey and comes back to Galilee. So that's why it says in verse 43, after the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, jump down to verse 45. This is what happens when he gets home. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Positive. Hey, it's Jesus. We were there. We saw what you did. We're so glad you're here. And so it seems like a really positive, exciting, people accepting Jesus kind of thing. But then sandwiched in it, in verse 44, is this real downer. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. What? You know, here's Jesus. Prophet has no honor in his home country. He gets to Galilee. Yay, we're glad to see you. So it's tough to tell, like, what what the passage is trying to say. It it seems like it's saying opposite things. In fact, that, that contrast is so disjointed in some ways and so jarring that a lot of scholars have spilled a lot of ink trying to reconcile how verses 44 and 45 could go together. Because, you know, that's what scholars do. They wrestle with these kinds of questions. Uh, Scholars have come up with different solutions. Some scholars have said, you know, maybe what it is is that Judea in the south was his own country. And, I mean, he was born in Bethlehem. That's in the south. So when he gets to Galilee, he's leaving the area that he wasn't accepted, and he's coming to the area where he was accepted. Maybe that's what it's saying. The problem is that Galilee is where he grew up. That was his own country. And the Gospel of John never mentions Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We learn that from other Gospels. So as far as John's concerned, Jesus is home. He's stepped off of Samarian soil, Samaritan soil, and he's back on Israelite soil. So he's home. He's in his home country. And Jesus says, I have no honor in my own country. But then they honor him and they welcome him. It's strange. Other scholars have, have thought this is so jarring that, that it so doesn't fit and doesn't flow that some scholars said, you know, verse 44 probably really wasn't in the original text. Probably what happened is somewhere along the way, some scribe got confused and started doing some cut and paste with the different gospel manuscripts and stuck this verse in here. So it really doesn't belong here. He's probably just kind of ignored this verse. And, uh, well, that's obviously problematic. Um, and, and, and so you wrestle with that. You say, well, why is it there? It's really strange. But look, it, it continues in the passage. I mean, let's just read a little bit more to kind of get a sense of this. Verse 46, once, he vis- once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. You know, back in chapter 2, Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. That seems pretty positive. Jesus, my son is dying. Help! 
Here's somebody responding to Jesus with faith and with request for healing. And look how Jesus answers this dad whose son is dying. Verse 48. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Wow. That's pretty negative. So it, it just keeps whiplashing back and forth. You know, I'm, no prophet's welcome in his home country. Yay, we're glad you're here. We saw what you did in Jerusalem. Welcome. Jesus, heal my kid. If you guys don't see miracles, you'll never believe. What? You know, what is going on in this story? It's really jarring. Not only that, but this is something else, is that the positives tend to be the people, and the negative appears to be Jesus. So whatever the people show up, they're excited. They seem to be trusting and reaching out to God and accepting and embracing. And whenever you see Jesus, he seems to have the stiff arm up. He's saying, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. What's, you guys, no, prophet's not welcome here. And so it's, it's very strange. You know, how do these things go together? What, what is it that, what is Jesus' problem here? Why, why isn't he excited to be welcomed why does he respond to this man and to the crowds? Because notice in verse 48, he's speaking to both the man and the crowds. It says, Jesus told him, it's singular, a singular pronoun. Jesus is speaking to the man, but his words address the whole group. Unless you people, it's you plural, see miraculous signs. So, so this man is sort of one example of the problem with all of these Galileans is that They won't believe unless they see signs and wonders. So what is Jesus doing? It appears that what Jesus is doing, the reason he is so standoffish and negative, is that he discerns their hearts. And he sees that the faith that seems so effervescent and so excited is actually a very shallow faith. That, that there's something wrong with the quality of their response. That these people are responding to him, but Jesus sees through it, and he sees that really their excitement is over the fact that he's done some miracles. It's what he can do for them and what he does, and so it's a, a sort of limited, light, shallow, no-rooted uh, faith, but it's not a real faith in who he is. Check this out. Look back at verse 45. It says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Okay, so they had already seen Jesus before. And you know what? We've already seen them before. Go back to chapter 2. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 23. So now we're going back in time. Rewind the DVR. Go back to when Jesus was in the south, in Jerusalem at the Passover, before he made this journey back north. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Positive. They saw the miracles. They believed. There were altar calls. People were receiving Jesus. They were counting conversions. Look at all these people coming to faith in Jesus. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about a man, 
for he knew what was in a man. And so Jesus could see that there was something wrong, something deficient, something superficial about their faith. Even though they were all believing because they saw miracles, he knew that something was lacking, that it was a shallow faith. It was, it was a faith based upon the excitement that a guy did a miracle, and they were excited that maybe he could do a miracle for them. But it wasn't yet a faith that embraced him for who he was. Their faith was like the, uh, the fizz on the top of a soda. It's exciting, bubbly, but it doesn't have depth. It's, it's so shallow. It just kind of fizzes away. You can take a soda bottle and just shake it up, you know, and take off the lid, and pff, all the, the fizz comes out, and it's really exciting, and Jesus shook him up with miracles, and all the fizz came out, but then what's there after the fizz dries up and evaporates and all the bubbles pop? It was that kind of excitement about miracles, but not really who he was. Same thing with the other guy. Go back now to chapter 4. Notice again the man who comes forward asking for healing for his son. This man then is a kind of representative of the Galilean mindset. Now he's a little bit different because there's a sense of pathos in his story. You feel bad for him. There's a sense of urgency. He's not just excited at miracles, but this guy really needs a miracle. He has a legitimate need. His son is dying. I mean, I, this is very heart-wrenching. And so, so there's a sense in which his is a little more serious, a little more real, but it's still kind of excitement over the miracles. You know, if, if they had a, a, a soda fizz face, faith, I would say this guy has a 911 faith. No, 911 faith. Help, Jesus. I'm sorry, I haven't talked to you in a long time. I know I've been out of touch, but I really need your help right now. And I promise that if you do this for me, I will get back to church. You know, whatever we say, we start making deals. But it's 911 faith. Help, I'm in a crisis. I heard you could do something for me. Could you do this kind of a faith? And so it's still a faith based upon what Jesus can do for them with miracles as opposed to the faith in who he actually is. I think it's instructive to contrast the response of the Galileans with the response of the Samaritans that immediately precedes it. Remember, he came out of Samaria. When he was in Samaria, he had a great response. I mean, just go back a few verses. Look at four, chapter 4, verse 39. Notice how the dirty, rotten, scoundrel Samaritans responded. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. There's that extra two days we read about. And because of his words, many more became believers. His words, not miracles, words. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. They had somehow come to understand not just what he could do, but who he was. That he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Boy, that phrase, Savior of the world, think how important that was for non-Jews, for Samaritans, to 
to say it's, it's not just the Jews, but it's us too. We're included. There's hope for Samaritans. And so they were seeing that he was the Messiah. They were seeing who he was. Then he gets to Galilee, and it's all, what can you do for me? Woo, Jesus can do all kinds of great stuff. Yay, hey, come heal this, come do that. There's excitement and fizz, but they've forgotten who he was. In Samaria, the fields were white for the harvest. In Galilee, the fields were clogged with shallow-rooted weeds that sprung up quickly but had no root and would die and and flip-flop on him later. So I believe it, it was the quality of their faith. It was the fact that they were interested in what he could do for them, not who he was. That's why Jesus said in verse 44, there's no honor for me in, this, in my own country. You know, you want something from me, but that's not honoring me. Honoring me is accepting me and loving me and wanting to know me for who I am as the Savior. And so even though they were excited that he was there, they really weren't honoring him because they just wanted something from him. Boy, that's convicting. <laughs> How often have, have I come to the Lord simply because what I wanted Him to do for me? How often is that the extent of our response? I mean, there's so many reasons people come to Jesus. You know, what are all the reasons people look to religion? What are all the reasons people look to God or the gospel or the church or to Jesus? You know, there's lots of motivations. Um, sometimes, well, sometimes people are looking for miracles. That's still going on today. That whole thing hasn't changed. You know, some, some Christian circles, there's like a miracle fever going on. And, and it's all, you, you, kind of Jesus drops out of the picture. I mean, he's mentioned, but as you listen, what's really being sought is some kind of miraculous hand of God. And in ordinary Christianity is not good enough. It's too boring. We, we need something more exciting. And so there seems to be a constant insatiable appetite for miracles and healings and dreams and visions and prophecies and speaking in tongues and slain in the spirit and breakthroughs and deliverances and glitter glory clouds and you know any kind of supernatural wow that's amazing manifestation of god's power and you know do i believe god can do miracles today well i believe god can do whatever he wants (laughs) whenever he wants I don't think anyone can tell God what he can or can't do. But there is a kind of mentality that can develop where one assumes that that is the norm and that that's what really Christianity is about is, is wow kind of miraculous experiences. People today seek Jesus for money. You know, that's a big motivator. Everyone wants money. There's a whole theological system. You've probably heard of it. Sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel. Sometimes it's called the health and wealth gospel. Sometimes it's called the name it and claim it theology. Uh, the prosperity gospel is, is viral in certain parts of the country. Um, or in, and certainly in certain parts of the world, it's just, you know, wrecking the church in some places. The basic teaching of the prosperity gospel is this. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. And God wants you to prosper. The reason you don't have it is because you haven't believed. And so believe, ask it, claim it, believe it, and you will have it. You have not because you ask not, right? Get the lack off your back. I mean, like, you could just get going here. That preaches. Yeah, God wants me to be, he wants me to be wealthy. He wants me to be happy. Why wouldn't God want me to be happy? And, and so you can go down that path. You know, I, I think there's a kind of middle class, suburban version of that that's a little more subtle, maybe not as over the top. 
You know, the, you know, the, the middle-class suburban version that, that I kind of find myself tempting, tempted to be to buying into, it's, it's not like, you know, Jesus, give me a, a Mercedes-Benz. It, it's more like, you know, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to be a good Christian. And, and there's kind of this implicit deal. I trust Jesus that by following you and by being a good Christian that you're going to not mess with my three-bedroom, two-bath, you know, two-car, 3.5-kid, um, you know, life that I've developed for myself. You know, I, I'm, I'm not looking for anything big. I'm not looking for miracles. I'm not looking for healing. I'm not looking for, uh, you know, prosperity coming out my ears. But I do trust that you won't take away the nice things that I have built up for myself. I, I you know, I, I know you won't mess with that because I'm serving you here, and so you'll do this. That seems to be a small thing to ask, don't you think, Lord? And the problem is when we seek Jesus for what he can do for us, when that is kind of the epicenter of our faith, and, and that's what we promise people in evangelism. I think the church sometimes sells this. The problem is what happens when God doesn't do the miracle, when God doesn't give you the megabucks ticket, when God messes with our nice suburban little fiefdoms we've developed, what happens then? Suddenly there's nothing under our faith and it all drops out because we have built a Christianity on what God can do for us and not on who Jesus is. That my Christianity is not about him, it's more about me and what he does for me. People seek Jesus for community. They seek church for community. That's another thing we look to God for. Community is good. I just uh, read a, I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal article this week. Uh, I don't know if it was Saturday or Friday. But but, uh, the point of the article was it was sort of a critique of secularism and how secularism has robbed the world of community. And how in in before secularism, when, when our culture was more religious, there were natural religious communities. And isn't it sad that we've lost religion, therefore we've lost community. And so for some of us, it's like, I want community. That's the big need in this modernized world. Where, where do we connect with people? And yeah, it's true, the church should give, you know, the church does give community. But we're not here for community. We're here for Jesus. And when we have him, a community develops around him. Community is a result It's a wonderful result. It's one of the great blessings of becoming a Christian is that you come to faith in Jesus and you're brought into a family. But but let's make sure we remember it's about him. You know, if you make make your faith about the community, you will be disappointed because people disappoint. It's like that's that's the the other edge of the sword. It's a two-edged sword kind of thing. It's wonderful to be in community, but then you're around people who are rehabilitated sinners, and we still relapse and all kinds of things into sin, and so we need to keep our focus on Him, not even on the community. Some people looking, are looking to Jesus because they have some sort of dream about themselves, some sort of internal narrative about who they're supposed to be and, and what they were supposed to do with their lives. And so they, they come to religion or faith or to the church or to Jesus to, to be able to, you know, they, they put it in good terms, give back. I want to give back. I want to use my skills. I was meant for more than this. And, and so somehow then, you know, the church or Christ becomes their platform for, you know, why won't anyone pay attention to me? I have so much to offer God. And it's all about them again. And boy, it's easy to fall into that. Ministry is really dangerous that way. That's something that pastors and people in ministry have to be very careful of 
is not seeing ministry as a platform for God giving me what I want, which is to fulfill some grandiose, uh, you know, megalomania inside of my own soul that I don't want to admit. It's all kinds, and you could probably go on and on and on, all the things we'd look to for God to give us, for Jesus to give us, that his church should give us. But we forget that's shallow faith. That is soda fizz faith. That is 911 faith. It's a faith focused on ourselves and what we want from Him. Or maybe, maybe the reason you're coming to the Lord today, maybe the reason I'm coming to the Lord is because we're in a 911 situation. That's, that's a basic one. We call up God when we're in, in a spot. That's where the guy is. Let's get back in the story here. You know, the man comes to Jesus to heal his son. Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told the man, you'll never believe. Verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. There's 911 faith. And then here is the surprising twist. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. That is totally surprising given everything that Jesus has said up to this point. Right? Up to this point, it's prophets not welcome in his own country. You guys you just want to see miracles. That's what it'll take to believe. What kind of faith do you have? Please, Jesus, please. Okay, your son will live. And not only does he heal the guy, it, it's like one of those intercontinental ballistic heals. You know, he, he, just, he doesn't even touch the guy. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't wave his hands. He's like, yeah, he'll live. Just kind of tossed one of those out. He'll live. Boom, healed. It's rem- so he got a cool heal. That's pretty cool. Long distance heal. Wow. So Jesus heals him. He heals him anyway. Isn't that remarkable? He critiques them. He blasts their faith. He shows them how shallow it is. He won't play their games. And then after he's done all that, he heals anyway. That's remarkable. That's a surprise in the story. You know what? It's very reminiscent, though, of the healing or the the miracle he did when he was in Cana at the wedding. You guys remember that from chapter 2 where he turned the water into wine at the wedding? There's all these interesting parallels between that story in chapter 2 and this story in chapter 4. You know, in fact, look at at verse 46. He references it. it. It's intentionally brought back to our minds as readers. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee. So he's doing another miracle in the same place, and there's something very similar going on. In fact, look at verse 54. It says this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. After the changing of water into wine, this is the first of his miraculous signs he performed. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So the the changing of water to wine and the healing of this kid are bookends that that frame a a body of literature. They're sort of a a subunit within the larger book of John. They're the bookends that mark it off. But notice something else these two stories have in common. In both of them, Jesus rebukes a request, and he follows it up by answering the request anyway. So at the wedding, you know, his mom comes and is like, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what to you and to me? Why are you bringing this up to me? It's had nothing to do with me. My time has not yet come. He rebukes, he rebuffs, he pushes away. And then he changes the water to wine anyway. 
Same thing here. There's this pattern. This guy comes, heal my son. You guys won't believe unless I do a miracle. (sighs) But I'll heal him anyway. And so in both cases, we have some kind of rebuke for people's deficiency in not being able to see who he is and what his mission really is. And then he heals anyway. What does that mean that he heals anyway? I'll tell you what it means. It means only one thing. It means that Jesus is a most merciful Savior. It means that at that point, his act of healing is not predicated on anything this guy has done to set the table for it the right way. He heals in spite of this guy, not because this guy did the right, dialed in the right code to get the healing. You know, all Jesus does is is criticize his faith, and then he heals anyway. This guy had a look, I I just want you to heal my son. He's not interested in who Jesus is or what his ministry is or that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or or like even the Samaritans who said, you're the Savior of the world. His eyes aren't on who Jesus is. It's just, what can you do for me? And Jesus criticizes it, and then he heals anyway because he is a merciful Savior who responds despite our deficiencies. This story highlights him. See, I do think this is a negative, positive story. And at first, first blush, it looks like the people are really positive and Jesus is really negative and grumpy. But I think it's the other way. I think the negativity in this story is the mirror that gets held up to my face. And I see the deficiency of my trust in Christ. I see the deficiency of my faith. I I see how selfish it is and how far short it falls. And the positive in this story is a Savior who heals anyway. How many prayers have we offered that were so selfish, so self-serving, so myopic, so so oblivious to the glory of God? You know, how many prayers have have I prayed for my own comfort versus how many prayers I've prayed for Dave Burgoyne and his ministry in Oman? That's an ugly ratio. I've prayed so selfishly and he's answered so many times anyway. You know, I, I have looked to myself so often and he so patiently heals and answers and, and comforts and meets me anyway. It's who he is. It's not who we are. Don't you see? This is what it's about, who he is. And so he first has to knock away this guy's faith and be like, this is not what it's about, but I'm going to do it of who I am. And so he's in this story pointing us toward his glory, his love, and his mercy. You know, we got to have faith in Christ to be saved, but even our saving faith is so pathetic. (laughs) We're saved by faith in the sense that that's the response, but it's not our faith that saves us. You know, I need to repent of my repentance. I need to repent of my faith. It's got holes and it's like Swiss cheese. It's just so... You know, bedraggled. My, my faith is like a little kid handing lint, you know, to a guy. And the guy is saying, that's great. That's enough. Here, here's a Lamborghini. Like, thank you, Jesus. See, I had faith. Look at my lint. It's like, no, it's all about him and his mercy. It's, it's who he is and how great he is and his kindness and graciousness toward us. 
Is that not the cross of Christ? About God coming to save a very deficient people because of who he is, not who we are. Why did Jesus die for sinners? Why did he do that? Because we somehow just had to be saved? Because we somehow deserved it? Because he, he saw that we were the kind of people who would have faith? Not at all. He has mercy on him whom he wants to have mercy. And he, in his own free goodness, has saved a flock through his cross. It's all about him and his grace and kindness to us. And yes, we must have faith, but don't get cocky about your faith, man. Even what you have as a gift, it's his grace. He's amazing as a savior. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ saves while we're still sinners. Christ comes and meets us and gives us faith while we're still atheists and agnostics and secularists and nominal Christians. And he comes and he does the work. And look what happens. It starts a process just to wrap up this passage. Verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. At his word, something shifting. Jesus, you said something. You didn't do anything. You said something. And now he's starting to be kind of Samaritan-y. He's starting to respond to the word. And while he was still on the way, the servants met him with news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that it was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. And so it's, it's coming along. That's encouraging, isn't it, that he's coming along, that we're coming along, that God is working in us despite our deficiencies, even the, despite the deficiency of our faith. Christ is healing and saving a people for himself. It's amazing what he's doing. Incredible. So, brothers and sisters, press on to know Jesus. Don't stay in the shallow end of God, do this and that for me. Press on to what the faith is really about, which is to know Christ himself. And for those of you who, who aren't even maybe in the shallow end, but you're kind of at the side of the pool with your towel, trying to decide whether or not you want to get in at all on the first step, I I just want to say, remember from the get-go as you're considering Christianity and considering these things that it's about knowing Jesus. It's, It's knowing the Savior. That's the whole point of this. So let us press on deeper in our faith to not just believe in what He can do for us, but to see that what we need more than anything is Him. Because really, it's all selfish. It's just how you define your needs. And my need is so much deeper than health and wealth and prosperity and happiness. It's Christ Himself is my deepest need. Jesus wants to meet that deepest need, which is to know Him. Let me just uh, close by reading a quote here. Uh, I, I got this quote. Have you guys heard of this website? It's called Of First Importance. If you need to visit that website. If you haven't, you need to subscribe to the daily emails from it. It's really good. They just take quotes. This, I don't know who does this. Some person who has like encyclopedic reading skills. But they just, they just grab quotes from all over good, solid Christian literature. And it's always focused on the gospel. It's so good. 
But this one was like over the top good. This is a quote from John Flavel. John Flavel was a 17th century English Puritan. You need to read more Puritans, people. It's good. And so here's John Flavel. Let me give you a little taste, a little flavor of Flavel. (laughs) Flavel Flav. All right. (laughs) Listen to what John Flavel says. Get this. It's amazing. John Flavel says, The knowledge of Christ is profound and large. All other sciences are but shadows. This is a boundless, bottomless ocean. Though something of Christ be unfolded in one age and something in another, yet eternity itself cannot fully unfold him. There may be many excellent things in Christ that the most eagle-eyed believer has not yet seen. It is in the studying of Jesus as in the planting of oneself on a new discovered country. At first, men sit down by the seaside upon the skirts and borders of the land, and there they dwell. But by degrees, they search farther and farther into the heart of the country. Ah, the best of us are yet but upon the borders of this vast continent. Take heed that you rest not satisfied with that knowledge of Christ you have already attained. But grow on toward perfection. It is the sin, even of the best saints, when they see how deep the knowledge of Christ lies and what pains they must take to dig for it, to throw aside the shovel of duty and cry, dig we cannot. To your work, Christians, to your work. Let not your candle go out. Devote yourselves to this study. Count all but dross in comparison of that excellency, which is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning for progress. We don't want to stop. We don't want to be like people who get to the foot of Heartbreak Hill and slip under the rope and get out of the marathon. We want to progress in our knowledge of you. Lord, we we recognize how deficient our faith is. We recognize that our faith is so self-serving. And Lord Jesus, we just pray, help us to progress in more of a love to know you. Lord, deepen our faith. Give us the kind of faith that blooms and flourishes even in the dead of wintry life circumstances. Because, Lord, our faith is not based upon what you do for us, but who you are for us. And so, Lord, deepen us, progress us. I pray for anybody here who is standing outside the pool wondering whether or not this is true. Lord Jesus, would you reveal your glory to them? Would you help them to see that Christianity is so much more than a self-help strategy, so much more than a crutch, so much more than a community. It is to know the living God as revealed in Jesus. And I pray that, that people would compare that to all of the baubles and trifles of the world and just see what, what a wasteland this world is compared to the glory of knowing Jesus. And so, Lord, give us progress. Take us deeper. Bring our hearts back to you. For those here who haven't prayed to you, really prayed to you in weeks and months, Lord, bring us back today. 
restart us on the path, find the lost sheep, drag us along if need be, but get us to heaven, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.